entering the Freedom Hut. Coming up on the Buck Sexton Show, Democrats are rooting for a recession because they can't come up with ideas to inspire or win over Americans. Will they get their way? What do the economists say? We'll get into that. Plus, the latest on the Rashida Tlaib, Ilhan Omar aborted trip to the West Bank. What's the truth behind the group that was sponsoring them? Also, a final dispensation from the NYPD on Officer Pantaleo. We'll get into that. Plus, my friend Andy McCarthy will join to talk about his latest book and Anna Paulina on the protests in Portland. That and more coming up on the Buck Sexton Show. This This is the Buck Sexton Show, where the mission mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. One small thing. Make no mistake. America. You're a great American. Again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. He's a great guy. It is Buck Sexton. Now. Well, first of all, I don't see a recession at all. Second of all, the Trump pro-growth program, which I believe has been succeeding, lower tax rates, big rollback of regulations, energy opening, trade reform. We're going to stay with that. We believe that's the heart of the free enterprise. We want an incentive-oriented supply-side economy, providing opportunities for everybody across the board. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show. You're hearing it from Larry Kudlow himself. I like Larry. Larry's a Larry's a a savvy and charming fellow. He's just like, look, I don't see a recession. Things are strong. Things are good. There's an obvious incentive among Democrats to not just try to create the perception that the economy's not as good as it is. Although I don't know, is is it? Are, are they going to switch back to it's the Obama economy? Or is that what we're going to hear? I, I remember when we were being told during the Obama years you weren't going to get to you weren't going to get to the GDP growth that America was accustomed to before Obama. It was never going to happen again. Uh, that uh, o- Obama had had saved us from the abyss by spending a, more money than every president before him combined over the course of his presidency. You know, more into debt, I should say, than every president before him combined. Uh. But now we're told that, oh, just wait any day now, the recession is coming. And you, you have people who are pretty openly rooting for it. Uh, they can't help themselves. They would rather the country suffer than the country continue under a Trump presidency part two. Here's uh, MSNBC. I mean, if you're looking for anti-Trump lunacy, you can't do much better than MSNBC. Here's one one of their... Multi-millionaire news anchors uh, has to say about the, well, her, her feelings about the U.S. economy right now. Play 17. But a recession is okay. A recession is a normal part of economic activity. We see them upturns and downturn. A recession doesn't mean it's a crisis. But if you're a sitting president, you don't necessarily want a recession on your watch. You want people feeling good. But seeing that we have been in economic expansion for the better part of 10 years, it's about time we get a recession. But the fact that Mm. the Fed has already cut rates to try to extend this economic expansion, you think that would breathe more life into And just remember, one of the reasons the economy has extended in positive growth for this long is the massive corporate tax cut that the president gave us a year and a half ago. He said that would result in GDP boom in business investment, three, four, five percent growth. We're at two point one percent. That's the average. 
But I thought it was the Obama economy because it was so good. They were telling me that like six months ago. Now, oh, now it's just the not so great economy because people aren't buying the whole Obama economy line. Just they'll try whatever it is. This is the cycle, folks. This is what we go through. Trump uh, colluded with Russia. No, he didn't. Okay, fine. Trump uh, is crazy and has to be removed by the 25th Amendment. No, he's not. Okay, fine. Trump is a white nationalist and has to be removed from office because he's basically a member of the KKK. No, he's not. Okay, Trump worked. <laughs> they just keep doing it. What about an argument uh, in favor of you know, expanding, I don't know, health care subsidies in the, in the uh, you know, Obamacare exchanges? Well, what about, you know, I don't even know. The Dem- what is the Democrat argument on immigration? I mean this in all honesty. What is their argument? I know what their talking points are. I know what the things are that they say. But what should be? They go, oh, we need a comprehensive immigration reform. We need to not separate families. And we need to be a welcoming nation of immigrants where they do the jobs Americans won't do. And it's just this is all just these. This is quintessential talking points. Should we or should we not have an immigration system that is about the interests of the American people first? Do they have an answer to that question? Should we or should we not send people who come into this country in violation of our laws or stay beyond their acceptable time period, visa overstays, for example, in violation of our law. Should they be deported or should they just be able to stay? These are fundamental questions about immigration, but they don't, they don't argue with this with us on these issues. They just keep engaging in the virtue-signaling nonsense about, oh, they're not doing enough at the border and doing the jobs Americans won't do and separating families and concentration camps and all these. It's blather. They don't have a real policy. They don't have an argument on these issues to make. And so, you know, what is the argument on the economy? You'll notice that they talk about Trump and what he's responsible for, what he's not, and they're playing all these games with the numbers. I mean, what, the unemployment rate's 3.7? Pretty good, folks. What are they going to say, that that's not good? But well, we, we've all been around long enough to know that that's a very low, low unemployment, uh, unemployment rate. So what are we supposed to hear from Democrats about the economy now? What's the, what's the pitch? Well, millionaires and billionaires and the separation of the classes and the millionaires, the billionaires, you know, Bernie Sanders. The problem with Bernie Sanders is people who know math and know anything about economics know that what he's talking about is crazy. We couldn't do it. It would ruin the economy. It would be disastrous for health care. And he has no idea what he's talking about. And he honeymooned in the Soviet Union like a crazy person. That's what they know about Bernie Sanders now. This is why they're moving away. This is why Bernie's support is locked in where it is. He's not going to get more support. And this is why, you know, credit, credit to the primary voters, uh, the Democratic Party, by the way, a majority of whom uh, that, that happened to be minority, a majority minority primary voters understand that Bernie Sanders is crazy and there's no chance that this guy is going to win or be president. So that's why at least they're going with Biden because it's transactional. They're like, at least he was a Democrat who might win. You know, Bernie Sanders is just talking crazy talk. How will Democrats make the economy better? You'll notice there's very little discussion about this in their debate so far. What really is their idea? More More regulation? Holding funerals, which is what just happened for a glacier in uh, in Greenland, I think it was. They, they've put a plaque in place and they're all so freaked out because a glacier has melted. Oh, no. What will we ever do? Climate change as the number one threat to our economy. 
to national security. Climate change is the number one threat, period, to everything. That's what they think. These are the people you want in charge of the economy? And that's why they have no argument to make it better. This is why the point about whether we're going to go into recession or not, they got nothing to work with right now. Class warfare, class envy, which they always will have because there is no such thing as a non-stratified economic society. This is this is the, the fascinating reality of societies that try to eliminate uh, try to eliminate class stratification often end up with the worst class imbalance of anyone. I mean, you look at things like the Soviet Union or Venezuela or any, you know, any number of, of cases where they're saying, well, there should be no separation between the classes. And what do they do? They have uh, hyper accentuated class distinction. So what is the what is the pitch? What is the counteroffer? For things that matter to you, right? Sometimes we come in here, we got to fight over, oh, what are we going to do on gun control or oh, this policy issue or that policy issue? I mean, this this is about whether or not you are more or less likely to be able to buy that house that you want for you and for your family, whether or not you can get that new car or whether you're going to get that raise at work. You know, these are things that affect you. Government policy, for better or for worse, has real impact on the day to day lives of Americans across the country in their pocketbook, in their bank account. We know this, which is why eventually the Democrats are going to have to switch from the wokeness uh, Olympics, you know, who's the most woke, who's the gold medalist in in wokeness to, well, sure, we're going to give you more free stuff. And that's how we'll balance things out. And that's how we'll deal with your economic anxiety. Free stuff, although, as we know, it's not free. All of their economic ideas are rooted in fallacies. This is the problem. Government centralization results in greater equality and better output better access false huge amounts of data to prove that that's false government intrusion into the market doesn't make things more expensive doesn't result in inferior products just ask yourself why is it that the mri which has been around since 1970 is still not just a very expensive procedure but depending on which hospital you go to expensive to oh my gosh that's expensive technology that's 50 years old that it never never gets cheaper somehow really everything else gets cheaper in the world of technology but not that why because government intrusion into the healthcare market means that there's not the incentive that there should be for bringing down many of these costs especially for hospitals don't even get me started on hospitals these days but what do we hear them arguing for or what, what do we hear the what's the storyline for the democrats right now oh trump is the economy any moment now the bottom's going to fall out we've been hearing about the bottom falling out for three years now hasn't happened yet what what reason do we have to believe that it's going to happen and let's keep in mind that depending on how the economy goes for the next year or so you will see what whatever someone's politics uh, dictate on the left that is what they will say it doesn't matter if they're an economic expert you know whether it's paul krugman or people who are supposed to be financial reporters on CNBC or whatever it may be, they will look at the data, they'll look at the numbers in the economy and find a way to make the story as negative for Trump as possible and as positive for whomever the Democrat nominee is going to be. Because ultimately, here's the problem that they can't get around. This has all gone much better under Trump's watch than they anticipated. They, can't, they don't know what to do. 
I remember on election night. Oh, the Dow was, you know, the Dow futures were dropping and this is going to be a the stock market's going to get crushed and unemployment's going to soar and Trump has no idea how the functions of government work and No. It's actually just been really sound. The decision making on the economy's been good. They told us that there'd be a trade war that would cause all kinds of disruptions and huge cost increases that would hurt the average consumer. Haven't really seen that. In fact, the more people have learned about China and now seeing the Chinese government waiting in the wings to perhaps crush a multi a multi-million person protest movement in Hong Kong, maybe standing up to China is something that a lot more Americans understand now than ever before. If China is willing to bludgeon its own people in the streets for wanting some degree of freedom, why should we think that they're fair and decent and honest trading partners with us? They're somewhat quietly but still a hated rival. Trump was right on that. He is right to confront China on trade. He has been right to allow the business of the American people to be business. To let us pursue our individual dreams and destinies without the boot of government on our necks, telling us what we're allowed to do, what we're allowed to make, how much we have to give to others. There's still far too much of that, but at least he's trying to lessen it a bit. Who are the people that you see in this Democrat field that any reasonable person would say, yeah, he or she knows more about the economy than Donald Trump does or would do a better job as a steward of the economy than Donald Trump? Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, I mean, Joe Biden has really never had a real job, folks. Yeah, he's been elected official. He's been in the business of Biden for as long as he's been a functioning adult. You think he knows? He understands? They don't have a counter narrative. So what do they have? Try to be pessimistic and create a self-fulfilling prophecy of, oh, the economy is so bad, you might as well just accept that it's bad right now and hope that people stop spending money, stop investment that they can shut down the free flow in the economy so that then, oh, they'll have something to point to. Ultimately, they recognize that if, if the election were held, to, I don't care what the polls say. A lot of people feel a social pressure to tell pollsters, oh, I wouldn't vote for Trump. Sure, we'll see. If the election were held tomorrow, any Democrat who knows anything would tell you, yeah, Trump would probably crush whatever Democrat he's lined up against. How do they change that? Re- how do they change that reality? They've got to convince 51% of the American voting public that Trump hasn't done a good job in the economy. Why is that a challenge? Because it's the opposite of reality, folks, which is where Democrats often tend to tend to be. We got much more coming up. I'll bring you up to speed on the latest uh, with the Rashida Tlaib, Ilhan Omar dust up. Uh, people still very focused in on, on that. Bill Maher actually had some very good stuff to say on it. It was nice to see Bill standing up for what is correct. And uh, we've got Andy McCarthy joining to talk about his new book, Ball of Collusion. He's got some thoughts about where the whole Russia collusion fiasco is going next. Oh, and Antifa. Oh, oh, don't worry. We got a whole bunch of Antifa discussion coming your way later on. They were in Portland over the weekend. I was watching on some of the live streams, some of the clips. What a what a pack of losers. I mean, Antifa's... And, What's, what's amazing is how many lib journos kind of like Antifa or feel a solidarity with Antifa. 
It's a bunch of just a bunch of beta male losers all over the place. It's really astonishing. But we'll get into that more. Stay with me. Recession jitters. President Trump said to be rattled as economic alarm bells cause a wild week on Wall Street. There are indicators that the U.S. could be headed for a recession. There are some rough waters ahead, maybe a recession. Fears of a coming recession spiked on the heels of a key economic indicator, what's called an inverted yield curve. The yield curve has inverted every before every U.S. recession since yeah. 1955. They say potential recession on the horizon. Recession, 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 recession. I think that they want to talk about a recession in the press. I think that they want to have a recession talk. The inverted yield curve. How many journalists do you think referred to the inverted yield curve? It's even hard to say in about a 48 hour period there that had probably never heard of or if they did, they had no idea what it uh, what it was before that. Oh, gosh, Ah, the inverted yield curve is telling me everything I need to know about the coming recession under Trump's presidency. It's not how not not how this should go, but that's where we are. Peter Navarro disagrees. He thinks that things are going to be just fantastic. And I know that he's much maligned for opposing the consensus of the economists on China. Just remember that, you know, economists exist so that weathermen look like geniuses. Play nine. We have the strongest economy in the world. Money is coming here for our stock market. It's also coming here to chase yield in our bond market. Now, what that does is when foreign money comes in, it drives the prices of bonds up and yields down. That flattens the curve. So all that needs to happen here, Martha, is for the Federal Reserve to do what it needs to do, which is begin lowering interest rates. There is a general consensus now on Wall Street and everywhere else in this country that the Fed raised rates too far to fast. We came in at Q2 at 2.1% GDP growth rate. We should have been at 3 and the Federal Reserve's uh, precipitous interest rate hikes actually cost us a full point of growth. People are saying, oh, how dare they question the, legit- I mean, the, uh, the independence of the Federal Reserve. Uh, the Federal Reserve has been in back and forth fights with presidents stretching back as far as there's been a Federal Reserve, which, as many of you know, is about 100 years. <laughs> it's not that far. This is not the, the bedrock of our democracy. I guess the Fed's a conversation for another time, but the economy is strong, my friends, as much as Democrats wish it weren't so. Occasionally, someone in the mainstream media speaks a little bit of truth, and it's always it's always a whoa moment. You go, hold on a second. Oh, this person's using their faculties of critical uh, critical thought, using reason and, and logic and applying it to a situation or to a news story or to a public controversy. Oh, my gosh. It's insane, isn't it? Barry Weiss has been willing to say things that are contradictory to wokeness on, a, on occasion. I'm not deeply familiar with Barry's work, but I'm, I've seen some of the things that she's written and said, and, I'll, and she is one of the rare individuals who are acceptable in elite liberal company who will say, you know, guys, we got a problem here. And on this Rashida Tlaib, Ilhan Omar trip to the West Bank, uh, she was willing to call out the mainstream media on CNN, because this has been an example, a clear and really indisputable example of of left wing media bias and how if you are talking about if you're in the mainstream media and you're talking about a 
female Muslim minority member of Congress, there are layers and layers of of uh, invulnerability that you apply, layers of, of benefit of the doubt and of a, a near invincibility is handed to the individual because of the concerns of intersectionality and diversity and wokeness. Right? You have to be on ill. If you're going to be on the left, you have to be on Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib's team because of what they represent to the left. It doesn't matter what they were doing. That's the truth of how the media has been covering this. Well, here's what C- it's what Barry Weiss said about this on CNN. I was like, oh, Barry saying things that are true on CNN. I wonder if they'll, uh, if they'll ever have you back. Play three. One of the huge stories this week was the fact that Benjamin Netanyahu decided to bar the entry of two Democratic members of Congress, Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib, from entering Israel based on Trump's bullying him into that position. He reversed course. Now, that's a huge story, one that I wrote a column about. But another huge story, one that has not been covered by any mainstream paper or network, is the fact that their trip to Israel, or as they called it, Palestine, was being sponsored by a group that literally published neo-Nazi blood libels and said that it supported female suicide bombers, you know, hailing them as heroes. That's a scandal. If someone like Steve King was going to Sweden or Norway and meeting with neo-Nazi groups, that would be front page news. One of the questions I think we need to ask is, is the fact that Trump has, you know, lodged racist, horrible attacks on these women, has that made them sort of untouchable for us to cover in an accurate way? I think that's one of the problems of this moment, that it's very hard to cover sort of complicated characters and stories like them because the president, everything he touches becomes toxic. Now, she did a little bit of hedging here, as you can see, because she's a lib. She writes for The New York Times. She's on CNN. But she is getting to an essential truth. She just covers it up with a little bit of don't hate me, don't hate me. You know, yeah, yeah, Trump. Trump says the bad racist things about these women. And so let's just establish that first. That has nothing to that. That may, means nothing. Should mean nothing to the media when it's covering this specific trip and whether or not the state of Israel was right to deny these women access to their country. Trump saying mean things about them in the past shouldn't, but as we know, the New York Times is on a mission, a mission to serve its audience by serving them propaganda. That's what it's doing. It's, we, we, they've been open about this. They had that meeting with Dean Baquet, and they, you know, they talked about all this stuff. But a group, uh, MIFTA, I believe it's called, that was supporting that, that was, that was the sponsor of this trip for Tlaib and Ilhan Omar. I mean, this is a deeply anti-Semitic group in publishing neo-Nazi cartoons. I mean, her comparison, Barry Weiss's comparison of, of someone going to a white nationalist, uh, you know, white nationalist or neo-Nazi group in Europe and the country saying, we don't want you meeting with this neo-Nazi group. Would anybody, it would, does anyone think for a second the media wouldn't be all over that story? Why is this treated so differently? Well, then she touched upon it again. She said, it's, oh, it's difficult for us in this era to know how to. No, it's, it's, it's not really that difficult. It's just that there are different standards for how the left will deal with members of Congress who are female, minority, and Muslim. Just that's, that's reality. I mean, I'm sure there are libs, there are leftists that would say, oh, that's not true. No, it is true. They think that there's, there's a, because of, intersectionality, which is now the really official belief of the Democratic Party, that individuals are constantly living through different 
levels of oppression based upon what categories they fit into. And therefore, you have to try and gauge and assess and adjust for that oppression and and however you're interacting with and dealing with those different individuals. I mean, it's just dizzying. It's self-contradictory. It makes no sense. But that's how they approach things. This is how they justify in their minds what is clearly a double standard in reporting on this trip uh, for Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib. So, you know who really gets it, by the way? Bill Maher. Bill Maher stepped up on this one. And, you know, not just because I was on a show and I actually kind of enjoyed talking to the guy and everything else. You know, he's, he was he was a nice guy backstage. I like I like Bill. Put that aside for a moment, all right? Bill, sometimes, especially on First Amendment issues, but occasionally on the radical Islam thing, too, will speak, will actually speak truth to the left-wing power. And here's what he had to say about Rashida Tlaib. Play 15. It's a purity test. BDS is a purity test by people who want to appear woke but actually slept through history class as if the occupation came right out of the blue that this completely peaceful people found themselves occupied yep i mean the the acceptance of bds specifically for israel when you have all these uh these middle eastern states that are engaged in such real oppression and violence and and different degrees of genocide within their own borders and Horrific stuff going on and a a small functional rule of law based democracy and a, and a major U.S. and Western ally Israel should be treated like it's it's the modern equivalent of of apartheid South Africa and completely economically leveled, destroyed to please pro-Palestinian activists who can believe that this is fair, that this is a good idea. Brainwash libs. Bill Maher called them out. And you know what they did? They said that now Bill Maher should be boycotted because that's how they play the game. First of all, voter fraud is a myth. It does not exist. People aren't putting on, you know, fake mustaches trying to vote twice. But voter suppression is real. We know that voter ID laws seem perfectly normal. But if you lived in Alabama when they passed their voter ID law, they also shut down two-thirds, I believe, of the organizations of the DMVs in black communities so that the very people who needed those IDs would not be able to get them. If you live in Indiana, where they moved your polling place in Hamilton County outside of the bounds of the city, if you didn't have a car, you couldn't get to vote. And so what we have to recognize is that, again, these things, these Laws seem very basic, but the application and the implication is that your vote doesn't matter. So Stacey Abrams started off that whole little diatribe with a lie. That's not an opinion. That's not me uh, trying to you know make my case here. Voter fraud is a myth, she says. That is a lie. Voter fraud is not a myth. People go to prison for voter fraud year after year. Why would somebody decide to engage in voter fraud? I, I leave that to the specifics of the case, but they do it. They go to prison for it. They admit to doing it. And it happens time and time again. Elections, friends, have been stolen through voter fraud. Some of you are probably yelling about, uh, what, Kennedy in Chicago back in the day or yelling about... Uh, Lyndon Johnson and the ballot box stuffing that went on. I mean, this is anybody with a passing familiarity 
with the history of voting in this country knows that voter fraud is absolutely real. To say that voter fraud is a myth, I mean, to start off her statement saying that is to deny objective reality in the most blatant and aggressive way she can, which is just let's let's say that up is down and down is up and see if we can get away with it. But Stacey Abrams, who at this point is is largely just a a media creation. I mean, she's she's somebody the media holds up as she's never won anything. No one's really sure what she's done, but she appeals to the liberal media and is able to go around saying that she had an election stolen from her. And then when anyone says, well, what are your what are your sources or what, what are the facts to back that up? You get a lot of, well, you know, a polling place was moved or there was this or there was that or there's nothing. There's nothing to support her claim when you really dig into the facts of what happened. That the election was stolen from her. And I'm sorry, but I remember because it was only back in the fall of 2016 when the media was you know, 95 percent certain that Hillary Clinton was going to beat Donald Trump in the presidential election. I remember when the mere notion of somebody claiming that an election did not have a uh, or that they would not accept the results of, a, of an electoral outcome was undermining our most sacred institutions of government. Oh, my gosh. How could Donald Trump? And then what we saw was Hillary lost. And sure enough, the entire country has been dragged through a going on three years of hysteria about how Russia actually determined the election because Democrats are sore losers and crybabies. That's what's happened in the country. I mean, people can come up with all this. Oh, but what about the Trump Tower meeting? Yeah, they're crybabies. They lost an election. They thought after eight years of Obama, it was just going to be smooth sailing for Democrats for as far as the eye could see. And that was not the case. Stacey Abrams is not held to account for her claims about having a stolen election in Georgia, which is just not true. And then she goes around saying the things like voter fraud is a myth and claims that the Republicans are always trying to find new ways to suppress the vote. I mean, voter suppression is real, but a greatly exaggerated, a greatly exaggerated complaint on the left. Um, I mean, for one thing, thing you know, voter ID, which has been held to be uh, constitutional, is a necessary step in securing elections. They fight that all the time, and they claim that the very act of, of demanding ID is racist. This is a claim you'll hear all the time. The Supreme Court has already ruled on this and said, no, it's not racist to say you have to have an ID to vote. That's not racist. But they still say it's racist. And I think the, the Democratic Party has to answer for the implications of why something as straightforward and neutral as a matter of law as voter ID, is, they, they believe that to be, in and of itself, racist. Speaking of race issues, by the way, do you see that uh, Elizabeth Warren has, look, she's been making some gains in the polls. I've said it before. I'll say it again. Uh, the fact that she has a Terminator-like ability to emerge from the self-immolation of her I'm 1-1024th Cherokee debacle that CNN, I will never forget, and CNN's head of PR came after me publicly because I was like, you guys look like morons. CNN was like, oh, 
Elizabeth Warren's proved it. She is a Cherokee. Here's the test. One 1,024th Cherokee. And the rest of America looked at them and was like, uh, you guys are idiots. But it hasn't collapsed her campaign. It was the, the most bizarre, unforced error in American politics that I can think of in recent years. Completely unnecessary. Nobody was asking about it. There was, the, there was no news cycle devoted before she came out with those results to it. Oh, is Elizabeth Warren actually a Cherokee? Inquiring minds want to know. But she thought that she should present the results, and she did, and it was a total and utter debacle. No, no surprise there. Yet she still marches on. Some might even say she's on the warpath. She's going after her Republican rivals as though they're the ones that need sensitivity training. They're the ones, you know, Donald Trump, you know, his racist comments about calling her Pocahontas. He's the one that we need to be focused on here. Of course, what a shock that is. Here she is apologizing, though, at the Native American Forum in Iowa, Play 19. I know that I have made mistakes. I am sorry for harm I have caused. I have listened and I have learned a lot. And I am grateful for the many conversations that we've had together. What is the harm that she has caused? Keep in mind, she claims that she never received any professional benefit from saying that she was a Cherokee. So what is the harm? If it were now she's saying that she's made mistakes and there's harm. But no, no, no. Let's not let her just escape from this. Let's not let her you know, sneak away. What exactly is the harm if this was an honest mistake all along? No, you see, she said, I have made mistakes. It wasn't making of mistakes. It was one big mistake, which was that this was all a lie, a deliberate lie where she leveraged the left wing, politically correct, academic and professional apparatus that advantages certain minorities over the rest of Americans and she used it for her own purposes. So it wasn't it wasn't a series really of lies. It was just one big lie repeated over and over again over a series of many years. But notice how she says she's she's uh, apologizing for the harm here, but she's never admitted what that harm is, because to admit that there was harm is to admit that she used this for professional advancement. And she clearly refuses to do that. Because then the whole thing starts to unravel. Why is she a United States senator? Oh, because she was a professor at Harvard Law School. Why was she a professor at Harvard Law School? Oh, because she was a professor at University of Pennsylvania Law School. Why was she a professor? Oh, because, you know, you get on the list. Was it because that she was able to be listed as a highly desirable minority for the purposes of diversity hiring? That was always the theory. If that's the harm that she engaged in racial fraud... I think she should have to answer for that before being forgiven. I don't think she can just give a vague, yo, totally sorry, see you later, and that's the end of it. I think there's more to it than that. I think we're allowed to demand more than that. But uh, we shall see. I, If you're asking me who it's going to be for the Democrats in the end, right now I'd put my money on Warren, which says a lot more about the Democrats and their lunacy than anything else. In this country. Though we would like to think otherwise, was founded on racism, 
has persisted through racism and is racist today. And if you don't want to accept that phrase or that word or that distinction, look at this. There is 10 times the wealth in white America today than there is in black America. There are 2.3 million people behind bars tonight while we enjoy our freedom disproportionately comprised of people of color, the largest prison population on the planet, bar none. Beto is just trying so hard to be the most woke candidate, and he appeals to a certain kind of sanctimonious liberal because he's actually a super rich white guy, but all he does is talk about racism and how bad it is. I thought that originally maybe Beto O'Rourke would be a Democrat candidate that we would all think of more along the lines of how we consider, say, Andrew Yang or Tulsi Gabbard. You know, I, I disagree with Gabbard and Yang. I don't find them entirely un, unacceptable and, and gross. <laughs> I don't actively dislike the persona that they are both putting for the personas that they are putting forward. Tulsi Gabbard strikes me as earnest and reasonable on a lot of things. And I like that she serves her country still. I like that she's been in the military and other stuff. And Yang is, it seems like a pretty nice guy who puts ideas out there and is trying to at least engage the other side. Um, and you know that I've, I've essentially think that Delaney's, if you had to have a Democrat be president, I think Delaney's probably the best option, which is why the Democrats hate him because he's not crazy. But and he's, you know, out of the running already. I mean, the guy's got like zero point zero 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 one percent of the vote. But what Beto is saying here that our country was founded on racism uh, is, well, first of all, it's it would be true of every country in the Western Hemisphere. In fact, if we're really going to and, you know, the New York Times has this 1619 project now, which is very interesting because 1619 is the first year when you had a written record of. Uh, African slaves brought to America by colonials, by uh, British colonials. But it's it's they, they start it because it's 400 years of slavery and they look at the anniversary of it and it all oh, it has this resonance. There were slaves elsewhere in the Americas long before they arrived in the colonies in 1619. And the slave trade existed in Africa among Africans. The slave trade existed across the Mediterranean basin. The white slave trade existed where Muslim corsairs, Muslim pirates would seize people from the coasts of Spain and France and England and Ireland and Iceland and you name it and bring them to the dungeons, the mines and the harems of Muslim North Africa. That was in the 1600s, the 1700s, all the way up to the early 1800s, folks. You don't hear much about that, do you? If Beto's point is that our country was founded on racism, what he's really just saying is that the world 400, well, in the case of our founding a couple of hundred years ago, but if we're going to look at the New York Times and talk about the origins of America and its racist origins in 1619, uh, the entire world was racist then. Racism, as in a tribalism based on skin color between different people, was the historical norm until very recently. Uh, the, the, there's a, a mythology, it seems, that has existed where, you know, some races engaged in racism in the 15th, 16th, 17th century, but other races had already become enlightened enough that they realized that racism is an evil thing, that human bondage and slavery is 
wrong based on race, based on anything. Uh, That's not the case. The entire world, based on our own uh, version of what constitutes racism, would have been considered racist uh, when the first slaves came in 1619, for example. Um, And if Beto was referring specifically to the American founding, but I would just say that, okay, there's also the rest of the Western world and the racism that was inherent in the fact that you had slaves in the Caribbean, slaves in South America. Um, Racism exists in all all societies all over the place. Um, And in fact, uh, the American project has been a series of successive victories against racism that has brought us to a point now where we're the most racially diverse, pluralistic, multi-ethnic, multinational, immigrant-friendly, by the way, nation who have ever existed in the history of the world. And don't even get me started on people. Oh, but people say, Buck, what about the caliphate and uh, and the Ottoman Empire? And there was all the, the caliphate of Cordova they'll bring up. It'll, and I say, yeah, yeah, you mean with the Dhimmis? You mean with Christians and Jews who, unless they paid a tax, could be have all their property taken and be killed? That a, yeah, that's that was the great tolerance of the Islamic Empire. Don't even get me started. Uh, we'll be here all day talking about what nonsense that is. People just rewriting their history. But what does Beto think is to be gained by saying that this country was racist then and is racist now? What this is something that that a that a stupid self righteous uh, rich liberal says thinking that it's profound and meaningful in American society, and it has, it has no real meaning. If we're, are we as racist now as we were then? Is he, is he ignoring the progression of racial equality and, racial, and, and increased racial harmony that America has gone through over now the 200-plus years of our official existence? What is Beto's point here? Just walking around talking about how racist we are as a country wanted, it doesn't reflect... The reality of Americans walking around, dealing with each other, seeing each other as equals, seeing each other as fellow Americans, irrespective of of race, of skin color, of ethnicity. Our day to day interactions across a country of 320 million people are incredibly uh, fraternal across racial lines, or I should say are commendably fraternal across racial lines. We do see each other as human beings, as, as people first, as Americans first. You know, but there's no celebration of this on the left. There's no, oh, wow, we've done some great things here. It's always, we're so racist. We're so racist. Uh, you know, there are complicated issues here. He talks about the prison population. He talks about how we have to, uh, you know, do more about the disproportionate number of young African-American men who are in prison. And, I mean, if he's going to tell me this is a racist system, I have to know, how is the system, the system, how is that propagating disproportionate incarceration rates. And I ask that question openly. I don't have an answer. I'd like to know how the system, unless we believe that the vast majority of the African-American male population that is in prison is wrongfully in prison, which I've never heard anyone on the left say, I would like an explanation of how the system is responsible for that disproportionate rate. And if that's not, if there's no answer that, that is forthcoming, then I think there needs to be a conversation as to, okay, what can we do as a society, what can we do as a country to help poor communities, help the inner city, to lower the crime rate within inner city America? What, what needs to be done? But that's a conversation that has to be held with respect and in good faith. It can't be just people like Beto stamping their feet saying, the country's so racist, it's so racist. 
tells us nothing. Meanwhile, the, the left just wants to tell us all that voting for Trump is in fact racist. I mean, this is, you know, we, we can try to have a serious conversation about race in this country and racial disparity and how to how to improve outcomes across all racial lines for everyone. Or we can do what CNN and the mainstream media likes to do, which is just pit us against each other and continue with either intellectually dishonest, exaggerated, or just completely wrong narratives about race in this country. Now, one of them is that voting for Trump, is it racist? Play five. You told me on the show two weeks ago that you believe President Trump is a white nationalist. Um, given that, do you think that it's a racist act to cast a vote for President Trump in 2020? Well, at best, it means looking the other way on racism. But I think uh, a lot of people are wondering what kind of deal even that is supposed to be. You know, you, you look at what he said in that rally. You've got no choice but to vote for me. And if you look at the numbers, basically what he's saying is, uh, all right, I want you to uh, look the other way on the racism, tolerate the negativity, uh, uh, accept the instability of my administration, uh, because I am going to deliver for you job growth almost as good as the Obama years. That's what his argument amounts to right now, and it's part of the reason why he's unpopular. Wow. Voting for Trump is a turning a blind eye to racism. This is, this is the argument that they give you. I, you know, they, they've been calling him a racist since day one of the administration. They pretend that it's because of the latest thing he said that was not, uh, not politically sensitive or savvy enough for them. But they've been saying he's a racist from the very, very beginning. So none of that has really changed. Um, Beto and the whole Democratic Party use race in the most cynical and self-aggrandizing way possible, and it really needs to stop. But it won't. The warrant application to the FISA court, I think, was quite frankly a fraud on the court. On all the communications out where they were on notice that Christopher Steele hated Trump, that he was an unreliable uh, informant. I want people to see how off the rails uh, this investigation got. Yeah. And I want people to be held accountable. We know that the FISA warrant application was based on a dossier prepared by Christopher Steele, who was biased against Trump that was unverified. That's one problem. What role did the CIA play? Who knew about this in the White House? Here's the question. Was President Obama briefed on the fact that they were opening up a counterintelligence investigation against the Trump campaign? I'd like to know that. That, my friends, is the truly radioactive question. That is the question that Democrats will go to extreme lengths to make sure we never get an answer to it. What did Obama know and when did he know it about the effort to construct, mind you, to create a, a narrative of Russia-Trump collusion? When did Obama have insight into this? When was he told about this? What were his actions? What were his decisions along the way? How can we know nothing about this so far? Now, let me just work backwards for a moment. Is it credible? Is it credible that Obama would not have been told by John Brennan, who was very close, as we know, personally close with, with President Obama and was his CIA director, uh, Clapper, who also had a very strong relationship with Obama and was his director of national intelligence. But the DNI, this whole, I, I was annoyed that I didn't get to say this when I was on the Bill Maher show because the, the heckler stood up and we got diverted. But DNI is a job that doesn't even have to, it shouldn't even exist. It's, it's worthless. 
It's a joke. It doesn't even need to be there. Anyway. What would, is it, is, but it does have a tremendous amount of access. The person who's the DNI has access to the Oval Office and obviously can see anything in the intelligence realm. Is it, is it a possibility that Obama was told nothing about Trump-Russia collusion behind-the-scenes efforts? And I think the answer is obviously that's not, that's not credible. That's not possible. So if that's the case, doesn't that also then explain why Obama wouldn't have done more? You know, you see, we, we've been the way that this has unfolded. It has been our belief, uh, or at least my belief, as I've spoken to you about this here on the show, that the reason that Obama didn't do more about the Russia threat to interfere in the election was because if he did something, and then Hillary lost, it would be considered, uh, you know, oh my gosh, look what's, ha- what's, what's happened here. If he did something and Hillary won, they'd say, oh, then, uh, you know, this is why Hillary, you know, this is why Hillary won, right? I mean, you're basically, you're going to upset either side. It was a political calculation, and he figured Hillary was going to win. Therefore, there was no need to upset the apple cart, so to speak. There was no need to do anything about this because it was pretty minor. That's, I think that's, an, that's a believable and I think that's a realistic narrative. I don't think that's the whole narrative. What if the summer of 2016, in the early stages, right, they started the Papadopoulos investigation. They say, it's a lie, but they say they started that because of a tip with Downer. We're going to have Andy McCarthy uh, joining us later on this hour to talk about exactly this. And his book, Ball of Collusion, which is out now. But they start this investigation of Papadopoulos, and then they move to these Carter Page FISAs, which, I mean, they should be, the intelligence community and the people that signed off on the Carter Page FISAs, they should be deeply embarrassed. I mean, this is preposterous. Anyone who thinks that Carter Page is a, it was, some, it was an asset of the Russians and a useful enough one, even if that were true, to be of concern to anybody, is delusional. That is a delusion. That is crazy. Um, But there's been no accountability for that. Uh, There's been this continued sweeping under the rug of what had to be a high enough level intelligence operation that it absolutely would have been brought to the president's attention. Would anything done to to a presidential campaign of the opposition by the intelligence apparatus of the Obama administration not have been relayed to Obama? I, I, I think about this for a moment. I mean, just just compare this by by way of trying to put this in the proper context. It, it used to be the case that if they were going to do a Department of Justice warrant, and I think this is still technically policy, although there's been some adjustments to it, but if they were going to pull the phone records of a journalist, that decision would go all the way up to the attorney general himself or herself. One journalist, that goes all the way up because of the political sensitivities. You're going to tell me that pulling the records of somebody from a campaign that is trying to defeat your party's candidate, that's not a level of sense. You're going to leave that just to the bureaucrats to handle? You don't think that Sancta Comey, James Comey himself, the, the would-be uh, Cardinal Richelieu of this whole scenario, you don't think that, or, or Ras, I think he probably fancies himself a really tall Rasputin. 
He's lanky Rasputin. Uh, you don't think that he would have told Obama so that he had cover in case this thing blew back on him? This is the part of the story that I, I, I absolutely want answers to. This is the part of this whole scenario that I cannot explain away without things looking very bad for the uh, looking very badly for the Obama administration. Which is why I think there's also been such an investment by some of the top people around Obama. Remember, his political appointees, his people like like Brennan and like, uh, you know, some of these others. uh, I mean, here's a good example. Why have we heard so little about and from Loretta Lynch in this whole uh, circumstance? What was she doing here? What was she approving in the summer of 2016? What did she know about? Oh, she's not going to get told about this? Here's what I think you're going to see. They're going to try to hide. You're All of a sudden, when they're forced to answer questions or when we realize that they can't hide anymore, they're going to try to stand behind the ex- executive privilege, which the media will all of a sudden, in the era of Trump, they've been saying executive privilege is worthless and you shouldn't be able to call for anything. Trump did not assert executive privilege once, over the course of the uh, Comey investigation. I'm sorry, the uh, Mueller investigation, which might as well have been, really was the Comey investigation. Uh, But protect Obama and Lynch and others, I think you will see the assertion of extensive executive privilege, depending on what we see from this Inspector General report. But what did Obama know and when did he know it? I've asked that question before about Russia collusion That is the single most that is politically speaking a question with implications that are thermonuclear. That would be a big deal. We'll get to that later. The Garner family that has gone through so much agony for so long and has waited this long just to have one trial finally conclude with a decision. I hope today bring some small measure of closure. Today will not bring Eric Garner back, but I hope it brings some small measure of closure and peace to the Garner family. Officer Pantaleo of the NYPD was fired today. He was uh, stripped of his position as a police officer, uh, his career taken from him, And he will have to live for the rest of his days with the infamy of having been taken off the police force, kicked off the police force because he took Eric Garner down in a submission hold. And then Eric Garner, who had multiple health ailments, including asthma and a heart condition, subsequently died from that scuffle. Uh, Let's. Let's unpack this together, friends. There are some complexities here. There's some nuance, to be sure. Do I think that somebody should be arrested for selling loose cigarettes outside of a store? No, that seems like something you could probably get a warning for. But if the store owner keeps calling the cops, if it is illegal, if we're a society based on the rule of law, at some point you adjudicate this in the courts, not on the streets. And I think at some point is right away. This has to be we, we, we do not have rule of law if a, an individual is able to say when a police officer claims you are under arrest and is trying to make a, an arrest, whether lawful or unlawful under the circumstances. 
Uh, unless that individual is under imminent threat of, of, of unnecessary lethal force from the officer, you have to submit. Uh, you have to go along. You, you, don't, you don't get to say, I'm not getting arrested today, which is what Eric Garner said. That cannot be an option. If that is an option, then the whole system breaks down. Then the system is, well, does the criminal feel like being arrested today? Law, my friends, is rooted in force. Law is nothing unless the state has the force behind it to enact its will. This is why when I say things like taxation is money taken from you under threat of force, I'm not exaggerating. If you refuse to pay your taxes and then you refuse to go to court when they say you're not paying your taxes, men with guns and sticks will come to your home and drag you from it. Yes, separate you from your family and lock you in a cell until you answer for what the alleged crimes are. If that was not the case, guess what? A lot of us might just say, "Eh, I'm not going to pay my taxes this year. Some of us might be saying that anyway, given the way the rule of law is eroding so quickly because of Democrats' desire for open borders in this country. But let me me just stay focused here on the Garner issue. I've heard from different and, for me, respected members of the law enforcement community about whether that was an excessive use of force or not. I've heard from cops, uh, former cops, who are very pro-law enforcement, who say, that, you know, you shouldn't you, you, he should have taken his arm. Really, the issue wasn't so much the takedown as the continued pressure uh, around his throat once he had been taken down. I know other law enforcement officers who say, you know, in, until you get the cuffs on him, he's a threat. He won't go quietly. You know, you, you're trying to get him to submit. He's yelling. It's a scuffle. The guy weighs 350 pounds or something. He's a huge individual. You got to You got to worry about what if what if he rolls over on top of you and gets his hand on your gun? Right. I mean, these are the this is why in the street it can be so complicated. This is why in the street second guessing isn't a fair first position to take against law enforcement. Now, what is justice in this circumstance? I mean, the Eric Garner case, I have I I have. Consider, look, I mean, you have sympathy for any family that loses a child, right? I mean, except in the most extreme circumstances. You know, I don't think Charles Manson's parents, no, I don't have sympathy for them. But, you know, even if somebody has committed a crime, you have sympathy for the parents generally. So, you know, I can understand the sadness of, say, Mike Brown's family, even though Mike Brown was a criminal and the shoot and his shooting was a lawful use of police force. The Garner family, I feel even greater sympathy for because Eric Garner should not be dead. Officer Pantaleo did not wish to kill him, though, which also has to be factored into this discussion. Officer Pantaleo did not use what he thought was lethal force, did not desire to kill Eric Garner. It was not, there's all this talk about, oh, it's rooted in racism. That's a lie, okay? If Eric Garner was a 350-pound white guy or Hispanic guy or Asian guy, and he said, I'm not getting arrested today, I assure you the officer would have still tried to subdue him physically and you would have had the same outcome. There was nothing to suggest, nothing to prove that Officer Pantaleo, former Officer Pantaleo now, had any racial animus or or desire to hurt Garner because of his race. And now I know this is where the social justice warriors would say, oh, but because it's a white officer and a black uh, suspect, there's always race. Well, if that's your position, then there's no such thing as a non-racist interaction between police and i think the left actually believes that now 
that any interaction between a, a member of the African-American community and law enforcement is inherently racist in some way, or there's some degree of racial injustice involved, no matter what the circumstances. There are leftists who seem to believe that. So Officer Pantaleo is fired today. Is that justice? Well, you have Patrick Lynch, who's the police union president, who spoke at a gave a press conference today after de Blasio's pandering. And we, we expected de Blasio to say what he said and to claim that, oh, the Justice Department didn't intervene. This isn't a, this shouldn't be a DOJ case. This is a local use of force incident involving a police officer. There's, there's not really a federal oversight role here unless they can prove a systemic bias that let me and they might claim that that's the case, but that's just lunacy. The NYPD is an incredibly diverse department. I work there and I know they have me on TV sometimes to talk about these things. I always like to note I was really a civilian contractor and advisor to the to the NYPD for counterterrorism. So I was not a guy. I was not wrestling people in the streets. I was not wearing the uniform. So I was near that and around those guys and culturally uh, very aware of what they dealt with and did some surveillance and things like that. But I wasn't actually one of the guys with with a badge and a gun. Just by way of you know, clearing that up, because sometimes I go on certain certain shows and they say, oh, Buck, you know, you wore the uniform. And I have to be like, no, 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 I did not wear the uniform, actually. What is justice now for Officer Pantaleo? What is justice for the Garner? Well, the Garner family's already gotten a very large multimillion dollar check from the city of New York. I know that doesn't bring Eric Garner back, but it is something. It's more than a lot of people get for use of force situations that there's a, where there's a gray area. I think they got six or seven million dollars, something like that. Doesn't bring them back. It helps. Helps with the pain. Helps with their lives going forward. So it's not as though the Garner family has been left out. You know, no one's paid any attention to them or this. And this is, you know, what is justice really for them? Well, when there's a terrible accident, which I think is what this really was, there's no such thing as justice. You know, if one person is driving down the street and they're, you know, the brakes on their car fail and, you know, they hit somebody on a bicycle and that person gets killed. What is justice? I'm not sure there really is justice. Here's what Patrick Lynch from the police union had to say about this. Play 20. Number one, we are asking for a no confidence vote in the mayor and the police commissioner of this city of New York. It's absolutely essential that the world know that the New York City Police Department is rudderless and frozen. The leadership has abandoned ship and left our police officers on the street alone, without backing. We shall have to see what that actually means for the city of New York, if there will be a no-confidence vote of any kind, if there'll be some upsurge in activism against de Blasio, uh, clearly, the NYPD and de Blasio have a strained relationship because de Blasio is a left wing panderer and will do whatever he has to do to maintain his power. He's only the mayor, by the way, because Anthony Weiner sent photos of his genitalia to a girl who was underage and went to prison for it. Otherwise, Anthony Weiner probably would have become the mayor of New York, which is shocking enough on its own. Um, but that's what we're dealing with. A mayor who is a hack and a clown who is making uh, who has put a lot of political pressure on the department, no question about it, to get the verdict that came down today that cost Officer Pantaleo his shield and his job and his reputation. Was this justice, my friends? I think the answer is no. 
But I guess we've already answered this by saying there's never going to be any justice here. It's just a question of how bad it gets. All right, welcome back, team. We have our friend Andy McCarthy with us now. He's the author of a new book. It's turned into a bestseller, folks, Ball of Collusion. That's right, all about the Russia collusion fantasy the left peddled. Andy's been with us since the very beginning of the special counsel investigation, giving us his thoughts on that. His new book, Ball of Collusion, brings it all together for you now. He's also, of course, at National Review. Andy, great to have you on. Buck, great to be with you. Just real quick, Andy, I want to I want to get into the book, but I was talking right before we came on about Eric Garner. Um, Officer Pantaleo was fired today. What's your take on this? I just think it's uh, it's awful overkill. I mean, they, that had a uh, thoroughgoing uh, investigation. These are really tough cases and, and hard calls. And, you know, I, I just think firing him is clearly a, a political thing not a not something that uh, was decided on the merits i just you know i mean that was a tragic situation the guy was doing the, the police were there because the you know they were responding to complaints uh and you know i, I just think that what happened here is tragic and it did not rate the office of being relieved that's for sure all right. So, I mean, you were at the Southern District for over 20 years. So I figured, you know, I wanted to hear from you as a former prosecutor on that. But now, Andy, ball of collusion. We've been covered. You've been one of our, our favorite people to come on and talk to us at different stages of the Russia collusion, whatever we want to call it. I, I refer to it as a farce, as a fantasy, as a delusion. But what do you want? Why did you write the book and what do you want people to take from it that they wouldn't know already or that, you know, advances the story? Well, I think, Buck, that, you know, I, as someone who followed this closely, the bottom line here is that there was collusion in connection with the 2016 election, uh, but it was not the collusion that the media uh, forced the narrative on upon all of us for two to three years. It was the fact that the law enforcement and, and in particular the intelligence apparatus of our government was put in the service of a political campaign by the incumbent government on behalf of it's uh, that government's own party, that is uh, Barack Obama's government on behalf of the Democratic candidate and against Trump uh, on behalf of the Republicans. And they not only used this narrative as a way to try to defeat him, uh, but they also schemed that it would uh, essentially be a monitor on his administration that would make it difficult for him to pursue the agenda that he ran on and i think their number one objective uh was to to make him no more than a four-year president and get rid of him earlier than that if they could uh but that was clearly the purport of the political narrative to make him unelectable come 2020 why do you think they haven't pushed for impeachment yet because they'd lose um and you know i mean they they could with a simple majority, they could uh, file articles of impeachment. They have no chance of actually removing the president from office. And the, the needle that I think the senior Democrats, particularly Pelosi in the House, uh, are trying to thread, and I don't think it can be done, Buck, is that the base of their party badly wants Trump impeached, even if it's just a notch on their belt, even if they can't remove him. They want him to go 
to go into the election in 2020 as an impeached president. But Pelosi understands that there are 41 Democrats who are in Trump-friendly districts, districts that Trump won uh, in 2016. And the Democratic control of the House of Representatives hinges on holding those seats. The constituents in those districts do not want the president impeached. They want to move on from this. So what I think she's trying to do is make enough noise to show the base that her heart really is in the right place. That's why you're seeing these investigations continue. But they're also trying to spare these 41 Democrats of of taking votes that would damage their chances of being reelected. We're speaking to Andy McCarthy. He's got a new best-selling book out, Ball of Collusion, on the Russia collusion delusion. You all should go on Amazon or wherever you buy books and go check it out. Andy, before we let you go back to your book tour, uh, we have an Inspector General report that's supposed to come out in the next month or so, I believe, although it's been pushed back a couple times. Do you have high hopes that we'll get the answers and get the truth that we've been waiting for about how this whole Russia narrative got going. Well, did, they didn't really start the Papadopoulos case just because of the guy that heard the thing in the bar, right? They didn't, I mean, there are right. some things that there's just no way. Do you think we'll get answers? I, I do think we'll get answers, Buck. You know, first of all, I don't think he heard the thing in the bar that we were told he heard in the bar. So that's that's one of the things I hope they'll actually cover. That's one of the real uh, cockamamie stories in this whole narrative that I cover at some length uh, in the book. But I think that, you know, We've seen from Mike Horowitz, the inspector general before, uh, that, it, you know, when he looked at the Hillary emails investigation, I thought the fact-finding was fabulous. I thought he did a very good job as far as that was concerned. The conclusions to me were a little bit mushy, uh, and I, I think he tried to give every bounce of the ball to the agents. Uh, I think this time is going to be different uh, for a few reasons, not least... Uh, he knows that the Justice Department is looking into this as well. So I think that, uh, you know, and he knows that Barr is very serious, I think, Bill Barr, the Attorney General, about getting to the bottom of this, which can only have a good effect uh, on Horowitz's investigation. And then a little-known fact about this book, which, you, which I think you'll find interesting in particular, is that um, Horowitz wanted to have more oversight authority over the National Security Division uh, of the FBI and the Justice Department. And basically, the Obama people blew him off. Um, And I think he's got an incentive to show that if they had better adult leadership here, namely him, uh, or at least his the specter of, of his supervision. Things covering. things would have run a little bit more in line with what we expect from the FBI yeah. and the DOJ. That much I'm sure about. Ball of Collusion is the book, everybody. The author, Annie McCarthy. You guys all think Andy does great work. Go buy his book. Andy, thanks so much. Thanks, Buck. Our team, we got to talk Antifa in Portland coming up. Last year, more cops died. But if you're perpetuating a system of white supremacy, in the line of duty. It's because you all know as a white or your job is morally and ethically bankrupt. You know you're a parasite. So shoot yourself. Now, don't be upset that they won't, they won't hire smart people. Suicide is the only way out. Don't be upset. It's the process of the system of white supremacy. To use children to fight their wars. To use the low IQ. That's just a little bit of what you would have heard had you been out on the streets of Portland. And otherwise, somewhat 
charming American city, except for its politics and its uh, unfortunate plethora of insane, uh, its surplus of insane residents. Uh, but you would have heard that horrible stuff, um, um, uh, lots of horrible stuff from members of Antifa who really do believe. I mean, I, I heard interviews with them over the weekend. Uh, and they're always asked questions in very neutral form by CNN and other other journalists, you know. So why are you here? And then they go ask the Patriot Prayer Group, uh, who, of course, the media says are white, white nationalists and white supremacists. They ask them questions like, so why are you basically worse than Hitler? You know, there's, there's a very clear difference in tone between the way they approach the two groups. Uh, and we'll have my friend Anna Paulina joining us. She was there covering this and taking video and and right in the thick of it over the weekend. So she'll be joining us in just a, in just a moment. But I mean, there you had people who are telling police officers to go suicide, uh, to go commit suicide, to go kill themselves. And they think that that's a, and saying that they're a part of white supremacy, that law enforcement officers are inherently in this country part of the system of white supremacy. Now, this is a degree of stupidity that's almost hard to analyze. It's so delusional. It's so bizarre that you find yourself shaking your head and saying, how could any person be so stupid? How could anyone be so reckless as to say these things in public, in private, to, to think even these things? But you have to remember that a lot of what Antifa which is just the most ridiculous name to anti-fascist. There are people running around all dressed in black, covering their faces, punching people because they don't like their politics, including attacking journalists because they don't like people to see what Antifa is doing. And they think they're the anti-fascists. Maybe they should study a bit of history and learn about the brown shirts, for example, or the favorite attire of the fascists that supported Mussolini. Hey, guess what? Their shirts were black. So... Not a lot of not a lot of sympathy for me for Antifa. That's for sure. I think they're a bunch of imbeciles, a bunch of infantile, delusional and just deeply psychologically and emotionally unstable leftists. But they've been made this way in part by a left wing media that feeds into this hysteria, that plays into Trump derangement syndrome, that that has mainstream authors and writers and who will say that Trump really is a Hitlerian figure, which is just insane. I mean, that's just not a thing that a normal, well-adjusted person could say. And I know that on the left, there's this, whenever they have Antifa do these things, and remember, this isn't one or two guys, this isn't one lone wolf, or there are hundreds and hundreds, perhaps in the thousands of them. And this is just in one American city. I've seen Antifa in, in New York City. I've seen Black Bloc anti-fascists gathered together in in other cities i mean there's antifa in oakland there's antifa in new york there's antifa in lots of places this is not a uh a one-off where you just happen to have this tiny group no this is a pretty large group it's pretty considerable and you might think to yourself or, or rather you'd be told by much of the left-wing media well they're not representative of Democratic Party. They're, this is not what the Democrats are all about. This is not, you know, this is not really what the left believes in. They'll say that to you, but it's not really true. Let me tell you that I tweeted out because I saw the videos. I saw them attacking people. You know, Antifa, these are generally uh, shrieking, shrill left wing females and the most odious 
beta males imaginable. Antifa is a, an overwhelmingly white organization, meaning the individuals. These are Caucasians who are overwhelmingly in Antifa. Uh, and yet they, they claim to be so concerned with, you know, minority oppression all the time, which is just this is the virtue signaling of the left just now with people wearing masks and, and dressed in all black. They pretend I, I saw an interview where one of them said that they wear the masks because they're scared the Proud Boys will dox them. Well, that doesn't explain why they've been wearing masks since long before the Proud Boys even existed. We all know why they wear masks, because they don't want to be held accountable for their vandalism, for their assaults, for the things they say. If I were a business owner and I found out that one of my employees told a police officer in uniform to go go kill himself and that that's the only way out from the oppressive job that he or she was in as a police officer, that person's butt would be fired before they could even walk in the door the following Monday. So, yeah, they cover their faces because they want to evade accountability. That's what the covering fate. We're not idiots. We understand this. But if you thought that this is a uh, a fringe group with no support, just go and listen to what's a Chris Cuomo, bro Cuomo, a.k.a. Fredo, Fredo Cuomo. Go ask him what he thinks of Antifa, because he'll tell you that punching Nazis is not on the same plane as being a Nazi, to which I would say that might be true if we were really talking about Nazis that are getting punched. But Antifa punches all kinds of people, including innocent, innocent passersby. So where's the rest of the media on this? And why is it that Andy No and other journalists are treated with tremendous hostility by Antifa, who is really an anti-First Amendment group in many ways? They do not believe in free speech. They do not believe in a free press. They want things their way. They want to make demands. Well, Antifa is supported, if not openly, in very clear ways by a lot of the mainstream press. I tweeted out, this is just one example, that uh, Antifa is a cowardly organization where people only attack when they're in numbers, they cover their faces, and they only want to, they only want to really get violent when they know that the people they're getting violent against can't fight back. Which I think this is pretty definitional for what makes someone a coward. And and I, I tweeted that, and some uh, you know left wing activist type responded that you know I'm this, I was in the CIA and so I torture people. So what do I know about being a coward or something? Which I mean I didn't torture anybody, and that's an idiotic statement and all that. It's, this, it's so stupid as to be beneath contempt as a comment, but lots of blue from Reuters, from a whole bunch of established media outlets jumped in and liked that. Of course, media matters also. Angela, uh, whatever his last name is, one of the, the biggest dirtbags on the planet. I mean, he's somebody who really should take a long look in the mirror and, and try to come up with some way to, to do penance for being such human slime and being such a, a, a complete and utter waste of space. But you know, he also, but I expect, I mean, Media Matters is the worst trash organization that, that deals in media in the whole country. Uh, it should be ashamed of itself. It, make, it makes Gawker look ethical by comparison, and Gawker was a trash heap. But all these different blue checks were supportive of liking this slapped this this, this uh, attempted i mean it was pathetic but this attempted slapped out of me for call i call antifa cowards 
and blue check journalists applaud someone saying that Antifa's not a, they're not the cowards. I'm the bad guy for saying they're cowards. Oh, it's I mean, this is now a, a public record. I could screenshot it. I could show it to you. A whole bunch of them. Blue check lib journos. You know why? Because they view Antifa as the vanguard of their left-wing ideological movement. They really think that Trump is Hitlerian. They really think that fascism is coming to America. They just don't have the courage of their convictions to say it out loud or to take to the streets. But deep down, a lot of lib journals are every bit as crazy politically as Antifa is. Calling an African-American police officer a racial slur. Members of Antifa have no decency, have no honor. And yet I can tell you that there are a lot of mainstream journos out there who have some degree of sympathy, some fondness even for Antifa, despite all of their lunacy and vile behavior. We have somebody with us now who was there in Portland covering this on the front lines, seeing with her own eyes, hearing with her own ears everything that these wackos were doing. She's going to tell us what she saw. Miss Anna Paulina is with us now. She is the vice president of when uh, Bienvenido and host of the Anna Paulina show, a podcast that you can all download. Anna, great to have you. Hey, Buck. Thanks for having me on. Uh, so what, when did you get there? what did you see? What do we need to know about the Antifa protests in, and, uh, what it was Antifa versus proud boys, right? That's what this was all about. Or what was it about? It was Antifa basically. So what we know from earlier this month, right before the El Paso shooting, Antifa had put out flyers that nationally they wanted to quote unquote fight back. Right. So, um, this, you know, they never ended up coming down to El Paso. That was, I literally scheduled for the same day that the shooting took place, and then they showed up in Portland. Well, the thing is, is that you had the Proud Boys and Patriot Prail. So, so I actually ended up going on both sides of the rule of the protest, which I will say this, Antifa actually was trying to incite riots, and had it not been for the law enforcement that really, for the first time, Ted Wheeler finally was able to, you know, let them do their jobs and really uh, push back a little bit with Antifa. But had it not been for them, what would have ended up happening is these people would have gotten out. Just, I mean, you already saw from some of the footage they were trying to get violent, but what was crazy to witness is that you had law enforcement officers that were clearly doing their job, biting their lips, being peaceful, and you had these protesters, members of Antifa that were dressed in masks and everything, that were actually trying to get at the uh, Patriot Prayer of the Proud Boys, and when the officers really held their line and wouldn't let them do that, what they're trying to do is they're trying to get the officers to incite violence. They would yell things. They're talking about, you know, F your wife, F your life. Um, some of the things, you know, I even was able to record all my own footage, and then they would turn around and try to record the officers' reactions to it. So these people, in no way, shape, or form, were trying to peacefully protest. They weren't even trying to talk. What they were trying to do is go there and riot, and like children with temper tantrums, when they weren't able to do what they wanted, they waited for the police officers to leave. They, in turn, then cheered when they left, and then, um, in turn, attacked some of the people that were heading home from the, the Patriot uh, Prayer and Proud Boys protest. Not to mention, which was, you know, particularly disturbing to me, at least, is when I was down there and I was getting getting footage of what Antifa was doing, um, I saw Democratic Socialists of America storm in with their flag, really, you know, hyping themselves up to even be at this event. And you saw signs, people waving the communist flag, which these people have no idea, let's be honest, what real communism is, and really embracing this mindset with a guillotine that said, you know, let's give 
uh, fascist a platform, really insinuating that President Trump is a fascist, that conservatives are fascist, and that we need to have our heads cut off. So that, to me, is not peaceful protesting. That is threats of violence against people that have differing ideologies, which is not the American way. What is the, the truth of the uh, the repeated all over the media, pretty much, accusation that Patriot Prayer is a uh, and and the Proud Boys, which are these are two separate groups. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah, the Proud Boys are different. Patriot Prayer. Um, I know. Well, that let me just ask. Are, and, and I mean, people people in the media say that that Patriot Prayer are white nationalists and a hate group. What is the truth of that allegation? It's not true at all. In fact, I did go over there. I was trying to get footage to even see if that was true to, for my own personal opinion, right? Um, and what I saw was they were reciting the national anthem, they were singing, and then they also were uh, calling for Ted Wheeler to step down. And I think rightfully so. Ted Wheeler, you know, I can say that I used to live in Portland. And I actually, when I first got there, I was stationed at the Portland Air National Guard Unit, and I actually wrote to Ted Wheeler. And I asked him to sit down and meet with me because at that point in time, President Trump had just taken office and Portland was really turning into, a, I mean, it was already really bad, but it was actually violent to where, like, you didn't even want to go into the city. And I got a letter back from the actual, you know, his office, and they were like, you know, we, we like to provide platforms for all people, and, you know, we're dealing it with them the best way possible, but they wouldn't give me a meeting, they wouldn't sit down, and as far as I know, Ted Wheeler has never sat down with any conservatives, any Republicans. He's very left-leaning, and had it not been for really the president putting out the tweet saying, like, hey, we're watching you to make sure that you handle this. Um, and that we're going to potentially label Antifa a terrorist organization. Had it not been for that, I don't think that Ted Wheeler would have dealt with it the way that he did. And frankly, he's irresponsible. He's put people's lives in jeopardy. And someone, multiple people actually got assault, assaulted after the officers left um, that same day. So it's it's not a safe place. And it's unfortunate because Portland is a gorgeous city. But, um, you know, you wouldn't see me walking around over there for safety reasons. I don't feel safe in that uh, area. Yeah, let me ask you about that part of this. So you, you were there when Antifa was running around. They, they wear these masks and they have... Uh, a kind of quasi paramilitary garb, you know. They have sometimes I've oh, seen yeah. them with gas masks, and they have sticks, and they you know they carry around uh, non lethal weapons. And ha- I saw them swinging at people with hammers, which I think actually can be a lethal weapon. Uh, yeah. But were they, you know, th- did they harass you at all? They definitely went after a Washington Examiner reporter and were threatening him, and police had to intervene. They they seem to have a hostility to people that are reporters that they can't be sure are going to edit and make them look better than they are. Oh, they absolutely do. And in fact, the only reason they didn't bother me is because, for one, I went alone, which I know a lot of people are like, you're crazy for doing that. But since I was alone, I was not as big of a threat. And then aside from that, I actually um, dressed incognito. I wore, I you know, I have these clip-in bangs that I wore. I wore a Led Zeppelin shirt, which happens to be my, my favorite band. But I blended in. And to them, I probably looked like someone who you would consider a liberal or someone who, who would embrace that, and they didn't bother me. But it was because of that that I was able to really get some of the footage of them harassing law enforcement. And then, you know, I ended up leaving after the police officers left just because of how I've seen them act um, and how I've, you know, to my understanding, how they've attacked people before. And I'm glad I did because there was also a gentleman that was arrested for bringing a gun to the protest. He was obviously there for no good. And they short, later on, like, were smashing out the windows and the buses. They were beating up people. I actually saw a guy get maced in the face, and they thought that, you know, they were going to prove something. This guy was assaulted. Well, what does it take, wait, 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 but what does it take for the police to intervene? 
The, the police officers are told by Ted Wheeler to stand down. This was the only time that I really saw the police officers say, like, hey, you guys can't get them. You guys don't have license to protest in the street. And so they were keeping Antifa and the Proud Boys separated. Um, but, you know, just like they did at the ICE facilities when they were protesting what was happening over there, Ted Wheeler's told these law enforcement officers to stand down. And because I know these law enforcement officers can't say anything, I'm going to speak for them because I have spoken to many of them. And frankly, they don't have the support of their mayor, which is unfortunate because he's basically their commanding authority. And what he's doing is he's telling them, you know, let the Antifa do their thing. These, these police officers, mind you, who are Americans as well, doing their job, are literally keeping the peace. And I saw people getting in their faces, calling them fascists, saying, F you, I hope you die. F the cops, F pigs. They were chanting this. And it's really sad because these people go home every single day and they are literally crapped on by people that have no idea what a fascist government is, have no idea what it's like to really be put into situations that are life and death. And these people put their lives on the line every single day for us. We need to respect them. But what Ted Wheeler is allowing them to do is not only disregard authority, but he's allowing them to bully people, to really intimidate people. And frankly, Antifa, they are trying to harm other Americans that don't agree with them. I, I think that they should be labeled as domestic terrorists. I don't understand any other organization that operates on the dark web that incites violence and does what they do and why they're being given favor within the media because they're bad people. Anna Paulina, Vice President of uh, Bienvenido and host of the Anna Paulina Show. Anna, I'm glad you covered this but made it out without, uh, you know, we had Andy No on recently, so we know that things can get uh, violent they can out get there. Bad. Good, that, good that you're safe and sound. Thanks for joining us. We'll talk to you again soon. Thank you so much, Buck. I'll talk soon. All right, team, we'll be right back. Well, Greenland, I don't know, it got released somehow. It's just something we talked about. Denmark essentially owns it. We're very good allies with Denmark. We protect Denmark like we protect large portions of the world. So the concept came up, and I said, certainly, I'd be strategically, it's interesting, and we'd be interested, but we'll talk to them a little bit. It's not number one on the burner, I can tell you that. Buying Greenland is not a terrible idea, folks. This is people act like this is insane. Uh, you know, we still have new countries that are being formed in in recent decades. You know, South Sudan broke off from Sudan. You know, you got uh, the, the breakup of of Yugoslavia, the fall of the Soviet Union, the breakup of all those countries. You know, this we like to think that what's, whatever's on the map is static. And always going to be that way. Meanwhile, there are land disputes ongoing, places like Kashmir, obviously the West Bank, the Gaza Strip, Israel, uh, the Western Sahara between Morocco and Algeria. There are places all over the world where, you know, who owns this or what's going to happen to this or who's really in charge? Still very much up for discussion. So with that in mind, Greenland as a place that maybe America would think about, uh, you know, adding to its... Holdings is not a crazy idea. It's, look, if Greenland had 50 million people, yeah, it's crazy. It's 50,000 people. That's like, uh, you know, two bad weeks at our southern border in terms of illegals coming in. That's not a less, you know, that's, and that, by the way, that's reality. That's what that is. Two weeks, 50,000 people, folks. Yeah. We're letting in the equivalent of a Greenland's worth of illegal in twice monthly. Put that in your pipe and smoke it for a second, all right? So, is Greenland a crazy idea? It's not a crazy idea. Uh, is it going to work? I mean, Denmark probably wouldn't want to part with it, but maybe we negotiate a little bit. But I just think it's so interesting that they automatically jump on this as the dumbest thing ever. How could Trump be such a buffoon? 
can you just think about the idea for a minute before Greenland would give us a tremendous amount of strategic depth vis-a-vis Russia? There is a real race for uh, for resources and access in and around the Arctic. Uh, that's ongoing right now between different countries who really owns the Arctic or who will control it with adv- more advanced technology. It becomes less of a completely inhospitable terrain that you can't do anything in. So and also just putting this out there, Greenland does have a lot of water. In the form of glaciers, ice, and you might start seeing more and more reporting about places like India and Yemen that are running out of water, running out of potable water. This is this is considered now to be a looming crisis. Now, I'd have to look deeper into the science of this. People talk about crises all the time, but water as a, as, a, as fresh water as a strategic resource should not be considered a bizarre thing to consider. <laughs> the, the fresh fresh water as a strategic resource, I think, is going to be increasingly uh, true in the future. Uh, hopefully we'll have better technologies, better desalinization and other ways. You know, what we really need to do is embrace nuclear power, iterate nuclear power so that it becomes the way that we power essentially everything. We'd be great. It's fine. It gets cleaner. It gets safer. And that would also then create more because desalinization requires a tremendous amount of energy from what I understand. I'm not an expert in desalinization technology, you know, turning salt water into fresh water, but it is. Otherwise, why wouldn't you just do it all the time, right? Well, because it's not easy to do. It's very, very expensive. And it requires a tremendous amount of energy. So, you know, there are ways that I think technology will will start to bridge the gap here. Um, but I just buying Greenland is not the is not the wildest idea Trump has had. That's for sure. It's not the craziest thing I've heard from this administration at all. And, you know, maybe there's a deal to be struck with Denmark over this. Now, and I was joking last week about how we, you know, we'd set up a, a referendum. We do essentially what the Russians do in not that we're going to do this. I'm just saying we could do what the Russians do where you have uh, you, you have people that are culturally and linguistically affiliated with you. They buy property there. They, they set up roots there. And that's not hard in a place with 50,000 residents. And then you have some kind of crisis that's manufactured. And then you say you're going to land troops to defend them. And, you know, so there are other ways. But I'm not saying we go those ways. I'm not saying we go the fake breakaway province route with Greenland. Uh, I'm just saying that it's that, that, that the administration would think outside the box on this one and that people would automatically use it as some kind of punchline just goes to show you they don't think about what Trump says or does. They just know they hate it because Trump said or did it. That's it. Um, so we'll see. Will I be the governor of Greenland one day? You can't tell me I definitely won't be. Rock and roll, fellow patriots. We made ours go up to 11. It's time for Roll Call. Indeed it is. Roll Call time. Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton if you want to be in on the Roll Call action. It's always a very fun thing to do. Uh, Let's see here. We have Benny kicking off this week on the Roll Call on this Monday, August 19th with the following. Hey, Buck, so many people are pining. Whoops. Read English book, pinning their hopes on the upcoming Inspector General report. 
But I have zero confidence in an agency inspecting themselves, even though the IG is allegedly set up to be impartial and nonpartisan. Isn't this the same Horowitz that amazingly was not able to find any bias in his last inspection, even though there were reams of data? Love your show and never miss an episode, but I do wish your guest appearances on the primetime TV shows were more frequent. Shields high, Benny. Oh, well, Benny, thank you for all your support, man. As for your theory about not having uh, confidence in the inspector general, I, I share your concern. I think you are correct to have the worries that you do about this. So based on what we saw the last time around, it's very likely that uh, whatever it is that they have in this report, as damning as it may be, they will at the last moment pull the punch, so to speak. They'll, they'll say it'll be like what happened before. Oh, well, here's all this information that any normal person would recognize as political bias. And there's a lot of stuff and it doesn't look good. But ultimately, we can't find that there was political bias in this. I'm sorry. Come again. How's that supposed to work? Very clearly, there was political bias in the in the first inspector general report on the Hillary Clinton email investigation, and they pretended that there wasn't. This would be similar to presenting evidence in court, right? I mean, you could present any evidence you want. You could walk in there and say Buck Sexton has been engaged in the most uh, ridiculous slander campaign against the show Seinfeld. He says it is overrated. He says that it never got the ratings that it claimed to. It doesn't make the money, it says. And this is wrong for X, Y, and Z. And then at the end of the trial, or then at the end of the conversation, just say, but we're not going to actually find that Buck is lying about anything. He's not really committing slander against the show Seinfeld. I don't know why this is on my mind. I saw today, I think it was the Federalist had a Seinfeld versus Friends stop making the comparison piece. Yes, stop making the comparison. Friends is a better show. Oh, I know. That's not the sophisticated answer, but it's the real answer. I, I knew producer Mark was going to do that, so I was just expecting it. Uh, but yeah, no, they, they presented all the evidence of bias and said there was no bias. And so I think that you're very correct this time around to think, uh, Benny, that that would happen once again. Steve. Yo, Buck. Yo, Steve. Hope you had a great weekend. I caught the Friday podcast today and you were talking about cleanliness and underoos. For the record, got to have fresh uh, daily underwear. Also, check out Separatech. If I had these bad boys back when I was in Bahrain, would have saved me a lot of trouble. I don't know what Separatech is, but I'll check it out for sure. I, I'm a look. I, I, they don't sponsor me. They should because I'd be a great advocate for them. But ex officio wicking uh boxer shorts are a life-changing product for those of us who like i know it's a family show so i'm trying to sufficient aeration in the nether regions it's very important i'm producer mark if we get you a pair will you try them out i'm telling you they're amazing sure why not summertime all right we'll put that on the list i like free things yeah exactly gotta make gotta make that happen Erica, if you want to understand the power and effects of radiation, especially the radiation from Chernobyl, read the book Physics for Future Presidents. I was shocked by my own huge misunderstanding of both radiation in general and especially of what was released at Chernobyl. 
Uh, okay, Erica, I'll, I'll check that out. However, I do know that radiation is not contagious like a disease. So that's in a, which unfortunately was misrepresented in the Chernobyl HBO series. Uh, Charles got a great gift for my birthday, a Trump 2020 coin and coloring book from a blue voter, my son. Well, I hope you got the Trump 2020 coin from listening to this show, my friend. That's the way to get them. And thank you so much for uh, for sending in your thoughts. Adam writes, Buck on Epstein. The cover has already begun. The elite don't want exposed and they will stop at nothing. Think of the scene in Flash Gordon. Ming happily watches his daughter get tortured. A tyrant will always find a pretext for their tyranny. Shields high. Um, I don't know what Epstein has to do with Flash Gordon. That's that's quite a okay. That's quite a jump. Uh, but yeah, the Epstein situation is you, you have to look at it through the lens of very powerful people who will do anything to make sure that the truth never really comes out. And I think that that's that's where we are. I don't think there will be any truth on this. Uh, I mean, when I say there will be any truth, Epstein's already dead. There's no case to prosecute against him anymore because he's dead. And the co-conspirators will likely get away without any real punishment, in my opinion. We'll see if I'm right. And anybody who also partook in Epstein's uh, depredations will likely escape justice. That's my honest that's my honest assessment of it, Uh, which is which is truly astonishing, considering what he did and what it is believed others around him must have been involved in and must have known about. Uh, None of them will be held to account, it seems. Jeffrey writes, Buck, shields high in regards to Canada. Maybe we could annex them and make them the United States of Canada or something like that. We could give them California, New York, and some of the other bastions of liberalism. They can write their own socialist utopia constitution and do the Green New Deal, while the rest of us can go back to the United States of America without them. Well, why would we take California and then separate it out? That strikes me as strange. Um, <laughs> I mean, sorry, take Canada and separate them out. That strikes me as strange. But thank you, Jeffrey, for uh, I, I like your out. It's definitely outside the box thinking. All right. Ashley writes, OK, Buck, this is Ashley from Richmond, Virginia. What's up, Richmond? Richmond's a lovely town, by the way. I'm Hispanic, a transplant from Los Angeles, and I love the South. I'm married to a great man. and I homeschool my beautiful children. I consider myself pre-original Saturday Squad. I've been following you since the early days of Beck. He would have you come on air to share expert analysis on a foreign matter before you even had your own Saturday show. Whoa, Ashley, you are pre-OSS. I've listened to you via podcast since your Saturday show. I think I've listened to almost all of your shows. I even remember caller Jason from D.C., one of your repeated call-ins, because I appreciated his thoughts. Imagine my surprise when I heard you read my Facebook message on air. Um, it was actually an accident. I was going to message you regarding your initial red flag laws, but then decided against it. Uh, whoops. And then there are preset options to message you. I accidentally clicked on one. Can I learn more about your background? As soon as I clicked on it, it automatically sent. Anyway, I'm glad you've revised your support for red flag laws. I hope you have a smooth transition to your beloved New York city. Keep up the great work. Well, actually, thank you so much for the message and wow. In, in, the, in the earliest days of Buck doing the Beck show, I started, now this is going to sound like whenever I do my, my birthday retrospective show every year, 
uh, or most years. Last couple of years, I've taken vacations like a normal person. This year, I probably won't. I'll probably be around for the show. Yeah, I started in media in uh, June of 2011. And so now we're at, uh, what is it, 20? So it's been eight years. It'll be nine years in this coming June. And yeah, I still remember the first few times I did TV. It was on Glenn's, uh, Glenn's set in New York City. And I had, like, my hair was basically still in my eyes. And I was wearing New Balance sneakers. I had work to do. I had work. I, mean, I still have work to do, but I had even more work to do then. But I did know some stuff, which was helpful. Unlike a lot of other people that wanted to just do media right away, I had spent years and years learning about uh, counterterrorism and national security and foreign policy. So that was a help. It wasn't just somebody who's like, I just want to be on television because like, I just want to like talk to the people. And I love conservatarianism and stuff. It was more than that. So that was nice. Matt writes, Buck, I'm totally down for a Central Texas self-defense Team Buck event. I drive up from Houston. You have friends who can help market, organize, and monetize it. A common hotel, meals, etc. Take your brand to the next level. Shields high. Um, you know, there we go, man. I appreciate it, Matt. Thank you. Uh, I, I am hoping to get down there. I've talked to my two brothers about it. They may be joining me down there, too. We were, th- we were thinking about doing this uh, sheepdog class in Austin. So when I have, when I have the full go-ahead, I will let you guys know. And hopefully a whole bunch of Team Buck will show up and we'll all be shooting guns and learning how to do wrist locks and stuff all weekend together. That'll be fun. And then we'll obviously go out and eat barbecue and I'll drink tequila while you guys drink beer like normal people. Kevin writes, Hey, Buck, this is Kevin from the People's Republic of Massachusetts. I listen on iHeart and you keep me safe and warm as I drive my big scary truck. Yeah, Kevin. Honk, honk, burp, burp. You know, I like that. When you do the thing with the arm and the truck drivers go, burp, burp. I'm, I'm giving you one of those, Kevin. I want to let you know, but after all the hubbub about Bone Tomahawk, I had to watch it. Oh, no, Kevin, what have you done? Suffice it to say that overhyped movies are seldom as fascinating as advertised. Mediocre Western and unscary as a horror movie. It was just okay. The famous scene was telegraphed about 10 seconds before it happened, so you could look away. I've seen scarier scenes in 1980 slasher films. Think of a guy as an upside down turkey wishbone. That's it. Oh, scary. Ooh, love the show whenever you're on Fox. Shields high, brother. Well, Kevin, Kevin, the, the trucker, is not uh, not at all phased by Bone Tomahawk. I'm just going to put that out there. So maybe maybe I will get to watch it uh, over, the, over the coming days. I got a lot of packing ahead of me this week. Moving is just, ugh. I do not look forward to that. Um, but anyway, team, it's uh, fantastic to have you with me here for this week. I'll be with you every day up until Friday when we'll have Ben Weingarten in. I will. Uh, well, that'll be fun. Ben's fantastic. Great guy. Super smart guy. Always does a great job on the show. I will talk to you tomorrow. Shields high.